Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer or artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field, along with contest winners and a few surprise guests. Today, we are at the Writers of the Future workshop with Writers of the Future winner Desmond Astaire, who wrote a brilliant story called Gallows. So we're going to get into that. We're going to get into um, what it's about, how he came about it, and his whole uh, arc so far to become a professional writer. So welcome, Desmond. Hi, John. Thanks for having me on. This is really awesome. Yeah, it's very exciting, and it's a very exciting week. Very. All right, so you won the contest. My, my first question I always ask is, how many times did you submit to Writers of the Future? Great question. So I started entering in 2017 after uh, meeting a winner from Volume 33. I was... Uh, who was that, by the way? So that was Stephen Lawson, who wrote Moonlight One. Um, we work in the same occupational field for our day jobs. And I uh, came across a story that had been written about him and uh, found his email address, reached out to him and said, hey, uh, you know, I write on the side. I'd like to work on becoming a professional like like you. Can you give me any tips? He said, hey, you got to check out Writers of the Future. This is the way to go. And I did discover the mission of the contest the the workshop, the opportunities to take the skill sets to the next level, and I said, "Oh my gosh, this is this is what I'm looking for." And so I said, "All right, I'm I'm not doing anything else but this until I win it." And wow, well, that's pretty cool. That's amazing that you actually intended to do it, did it, and then achieved it, won it. Mm -hmm. That's great. Well done to you on that. So, how long have you been writing? And at what point did you decide that you were really wanted to take it serious? So I'd say around the age of 13, I uh, started with short stories, discovered Dean Wesley Smith's uh, Star Trek Strange New Worlds anthology. And uh, it By the way, do you know that well, in addition to him being a judge, he's the very first person He's in uh, volume one of Writers of the Future, and he was the first one to receive an award from Writers of the Future. I did not discover all these things until uh, a few months ago when I was trying to get familiar with the contest, and I said, wait a second, Dean Wesley Smith, I, th I think I know who that is. And I went and looked, and sure enough, the editor of the anthology that inspired me to start writing, I said, how serendipitous yeah. that now and I believe tomorrow, I'm going to get to meet him in person and be able to thank him. And say, because of something you did, I'm here today, uh, you know, 20 years later, uh, handshake, thank you. Yeah, that that's is great. bizarre. Yes. And surreal. So, yeah, I found the, um, that anthology. And at that point, it occurred to me that, oh, my goodness, people like me who like sci-fi stories can write and send them in somewhere to be published. And I, I was a kid at the time. So I started writing. They were Awful stories. Just <laughs> awful. I, when I go back and read them, I'm, I'm so embarrassed. But, you know, we all start somewhere. That's right. And, uh, and I never got discouraged at the rejections. It just inspired me to, okay, well, I got to write a different one now. I got to keep writing. And the whole time I was learning about formatting and story structure, the elements of storytelling. And then eventually that, you know, led to longer format things. Um, you know, I started taking English honors in high school and lit classes and... Um, 
and it just escalated and snowballed until um, it storytelling became my obsession in life. It is whether it's uh, movies, music, television, novels, comics. If there's a storytelling element, it's uh, it's it's my drug. I love it. Wow, that's great. So. Now, do you write mostly fantasy or science fiction? You know, that is a great question because in the last 10 years, the fantasy genre has become very diverse. And what maybe we used to consider sci-fi is now classified as as fantasy because um, those two genres have blown up in pop culture, which is great. This mm-hmm. is our time. This yeah. is this is amazing time to be a content creator in uh, speculative fiction. So my answer would be sci-fi, but I do write a lot of, uh, I guess you might say, soft fantasy, maybe urban magic type things. I'm definitely not a high fantasy type person. Um, I, I appreciate it. And I've dabbled in it, but as a as a fan, yeah, I'm definitely more into uh, the uh, the sci-fi what-if elements. Good. So let's we'll use that to bridge over now into your story, Gallows. Mm. So um, amazing story, brilliant. You know this concept of it. So first of all, a little bit about what Gallows the story is. Yes. Yeah, so. Uh, my my primary obsession seems to be time travel. When I was young, I was introduced to um, fundamental stories like Harlan Ellison's uh, City on the Edge of Forever, the Zemeckis' Back to the Future, and those things just burned into my memory. And so, so many things of what I write seem to seem to revolve around time travel in some way or another. Uh, this is one of those uh, stories. Mm-hmm. Um, in short, the premise is: What if, in the near future, time travel becomes a tourist industry, as if you're going on vacation or going on an academic trip? You can just, in a controlled environment, people can go back in time covertly and visit. Uh, you know, like I would love to go travel to the '60s. If they said, "Hey, would you like to take a vacation to the '60s?" I would go. I'd be a time-traveling tourist or an academic who wanted to, you know, take notes of the Great Depression, things like that. Um, Well, in this story, the FBI becomes aware of time-traveling tourists and treats it as an imminent domestic terrorism threat that uh, if the future is allowed to change the past, then we're not really at liberty to control our future. So they treat it as a threat, and then decide to create uh, pseudo-cities and false flag operations to lure time-traveling tourists in and try to trap them and ultimately try to eliminate the threat. The story focuses on um, the character of Gallows, who was supposed to die in an airplane crash because of the time travelers, uh, his death is accidentally avoided. So it kind of creates a causality loop. Um, He lives, and by avoiding his own death, um, he becomes completely lost. He doesn't know what to do with his life. He's lost everything in his world by living. And so now vengeance becomes the only thing that he lives for, and he essentially becomes a specialist with the FBI to, uh, to help them 
find the time traveler. So he's a bartender in a bar. The during the first operation, um, they know that a fake historical event's going to happen. They figure that some time travelers may come into this bar. His job is to evaluate the customers and see and ultimately determine if the customers are time travelers and then trap them. Yeah, so that's not your normal run-of-the-mill storyline. So what sparked that specifically for you to do that? It's a Midwest town, too, a a fake town. Two really awesome questions. So it came from a writing prompt off uh, off of Reddit. Uh, Reddit's got a great uh, writing community and um, a subreddit that people just throw up general ideas and then uh, content creators can take it and run with it. Right. And uh, so I like to collect those. And whenever I'm you know feeling a dry spell or or whatnot or need some inspiration, I'll, I'll pull from my bucket of of writing prompts and and see what uh, see what rises to the surface. And that was one where um, I considered the implications and thought, ooh. I feel a plot happening here. Yeah. So that's how that one started. Well, the thing on it's it's located. I think that it's in Midwest, right? So that was uh, that was set in Oregon. Um, that's pretty close to Midwest. Good going, John. <laughs> <laughs> so Gallows was set in Oregon in uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. I got to travel to Oregon to do some media coverage of uh, the military transporting. Uh, medical supplies to Chicago. Um, I'd never been that far west before. And when we landed, I was quite taken by um, the mountainous west surrounded in this urban city. And it was is such a juxtaposition of the Midwest, which is very flat. It's either very much farmland or very much a city. And you know, we land in Oregon, and it, it's it's both at the same time. And uh, as I was considering a, uh, a setting for this story where the, the FBI needs to have a plot of land to develop a fake city, I was like, Oregon, where I was at, it just feels right. Mm-hmm. And then it was quite coincidental um, when uh, David uh, Farland emailed back, he said, where you set your stories, where I grew up at. I said, that's awesome. So he gave me some tips of how to dial in um, the setting even more as far as, uh, you know, memories that he had Mm -hmm. of growing up there. So that that was really neat. That's very cool. Okay, so now with your story, Gals is definitely science fiction. Mm -hmm. And um, do you have any plans for follow-up on that, or is that just going to be a standalone in the world of, of Desmond Astaire and you're going to move on or have already moved on to other novels or other um, types of stories? Originally, it was a, it was a standalone. Um, the arc of Gallows' character development was completed for the purposes of the story. But as this process has continued with uh, the story landing in volume 38, and uh, it's, you know, the thought has crossed my mind, well, what happens after this? And really, if you think about it, it's actually kind of a goldmine for a, a serialized story. So um, it's- There's so many ways you can go with it and mm-hmm. people coming and going and and his, you know, it's-, it's um, It could be very episodic. 
Yeah, it could be your science fiction's next cheers. <laughs> so I, I do have, uh, I, there is a, a mythology um, developing in my head of, uh, and I did incorporate some elements into the story just in case it does grow into something bigger. Uh, for example, when um, when the the senator says, uh, basically, you've been causing trouble for the future over the course of 140 years. Well, no one lives for 140 years. So how is Gallows um, causing disruptions for 140 years? Well, they'll they'll be. There's yeah, obviously is like, more to come. Definitely like, whoa, what's this? What's happening here? Does he live? Does he have protégés? Does he become a time traveler? There's there's so many possibilities. And I I, I figured out some things, and uh, there's so many different different other arcs that uh, there, there's so many different corners of the story that could be explored. So at this point, I think it'd be hard not to expand it um, for... Where I'm at, um, basically, you know, one of the benefits of this competition is I now have uh, four to six other projects that either got honorable mention or silver honorable mention. And so now I'm shopping those out to the short story markets. And once those run their course, I can either continue developing shorts or there's several novel length ones that, well, do I want to put in the year, year and a half uh, time investment to develop those to fruition and start shopping those? So each phase of, um, of, you know, I sat down and said, okay, here's the plan. Writers of the Future was phase one of the plan. Phase two, I didn't, I didn't think that far ahead <laughs> until December when I got the call from Joni saying, you're coming to Hollywood for the, for the, the workshop. workshop. That's great. So, uh, to be determined. Okay, good. Now, your day job, I know that you're military, and so whatever you can say about being in the Air Force, does working in the Air Force, being, being military, does that affect your storytelling, like what you, you know, story ideas or the, person, the personalities that you've got? Because... You've got such amazing character development in the story here. That's one of your standouts. So do you feel that that affects your storytelling? Yes, and in different ways. I've had a very um, diverse career, um, different uh, trainings and opportunities, and I've got to see a lot of different things. And... uh, you know, one of my jobs um, was uh, photojournalism. So, you know, um, much like uh, L. Ron Hubbard himself, I got to follow people around and learn about other people mm-hmm. and take their stories and experience and add it to my to my to my brain space. So, and that includes uh, you know travel as well. Um, so I've been very blessed in that opportunity to. Uh, be able to assimilate a lot of things. So uh, yeah, I do. I do apply all that into different uh, settings, characters, themes, for sure. Got it. Now, are you career military, or are you going to be stopping after only forty years? Yeah, yeah. That uh, <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, career and. Uh, 
the idea is I'd like to definitely publish as a supplemental income and then, um, you know, have that be my second career. And whether that happens sooner or, or later you know, will be determined, but uh, that is definitely, that'll definitely be part of the, part of the plans. Oh, that's great. So it's going to be, actually, I'm, I'm very excited to introduce you to our keynote speaker this Friday night. We have Lieutenant General John Thompson, who just recently retired, three-star, just recently retired um, as the commander of the Space and Missiles, Missile Systems Center, of which Emily, my wife, is an honorary commander, and I'm her plus one. So I get to go in there, and the, they think I'm an honorary commander too, but mostly it's her. And um, so he's just a really good friend, and I'm very much looking forward to, to coming here. So I'm very anxious to introduce you to him. Yes. Because he was instrumental in, in um, his whole thing is acquisitions. So his whole, I guess, function was putting together all the pieces to create Space Force. And um, I've been to a couple of events with General Raymond, who's the head of Space Force. And um, it's, just, it's just amazing what General Thompson has done to be able to get more and more um, startup space companies to start participating in working with the United States military to put together and help get us caught up on our space endeavors, which we were lagging behind other countries that we w couldn't necessarily consider on the same par as ours inter interests. So it's it's pretty it's pretty cool, and what he, you know some of the stuff that we were able to get briefed on is is definitely way cool, and it's definitely science fiction material from you know the golden age and up through the '60s and '70s. You know what they've got going there is just it's crazy. It is a fascinating time to be in competition for space and air, and. I'm very excited to meet him because I've gotten to work with general officers, uh, you know, a, a decent decent amount, but I've never met one that is a science fiction fan to the extent that he is. So yeah. this will be a, a this will be a pleasure. Uh, it's gonna it's gonna be a, a definite good time, and he's really, he's just so looking forward to this. He is so looking forward to this. All right, so now as a person that's been here now for the workshop for the last you know couple of days, what's it been like? In short, it has uh, just been extraordinary. I mean, you will, when you research the contest, you'll, you'll find this, uh, people say this left and right, and it's absolutely true that everyone has just been so kind and so generous, so fun to talk to. It's almost like coming into a family that's already expecting you to, to be here. And, and uh, that's just been wonderful. Um, participating in the workshop portion, I mean, you're talking about household names of sci-fi and fantasy, and you're sitting five feet from them learning their life experience. There's no other opportunity that I'm aware of where you get this concentration of talent and experience and their sole job is to pass it on to you. Oh my gosh. So it's, it's been amazing. You know, it's a work hard, play hard type environment, you know, long days, challenging days, all very, very good. And then at the end of the day, we all get together and socialize. Yeah. 
it is, uh, man, if, if you have not been sold on the concept of this by, by researching what's out there, this is a, a golden opportunity, and I'm so glad that uh, that I met Stephen Lawson and, and that he recommended this to me because uh, there's nothing else like it like it out there. There really isn't. Yeah, Stephen's is, he was he's a super nice guy. He's a helicopter pilot, right? That's right. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And I remember he was when he one of the pieces that we got. He was presented from the governor a certificate there, and he there he is in his in his military. I'm not sure what his. Um, rank was but he was last time i talked to him he was a captain yeah so it was it was definitely cool that the governor was presenting him that that recognition for having uh, for his science fiction which was great mm-hmm. so um so at the workshop there's you go through a bunch of different essays and, and stuff you're being taught by tim powers and by jody lynn nye they're both very seasoned professional writers yes multiple award-winning so um, what's that been like on just, um, you said a little bit there, but is there any part that like for you has been standout on the, on their presentation? Well, I really appreciated the, you know, going through the elements of storytelling that there, there's universal aspects to, to storytelling that's, that are timeless, you know, all the way back to, um, the beginning of the, the written age, you can, you can, um, analyze the writings from Mesopotamia and, and see the elements of storytelling. And so they've not only reminded us and refreshed us about how important the elements of storytelling are, but then broken it down in a practical application of why they're important, how to utilize them efficiently, which is exactly what we need as newbies um, coming from, like you said, the people with the seasoning and experience. They've been around the block They've seen the industry trends. They've seen the ups and downs. They've um, they've had trial and error in their own experiences, and now they're saying, "Okay, here's how you take um, setting. Here's how you take plot. Here's how you take character, and here's how you tweak it and do it right, or do it the most optimally." Um, dialogue was a was a very surprising. Very surprising one, um, learning a little bit more about dialogue. And also, I think where I struggle the most is uh, an underappreciation of setting. So we talk, talked quite a bit about um, how important setting is. And, uh, yeah, so augmenting that with, uh, you know, what I thought I already knew. I mean, already after, you know, two days of, of uh, classroom instruction, I already feel more equipped to uh, to – to be better. Mm-hmm. And we're what only half, not even close to halfway through. Yeah. You're going to finish your, uh, 24 hour story, which is something that, um, for some people is quite intimidating, but for the, the few, the proud, the 12 winners, um, <laughs> it's something that, uh, the dauntless is, uh, is what becomes your, your code name, <laughs> but it's, um, it's great. Everybody's out there working on their twenty-four hour stories and getting it so like tomorrow at two o'clock. You turn them in, and then, and then you're going to pick out three of the stories and you're going to workshop them the following day. So, um, any particular take you've got on the fact? Because I know that, and I find it really humorous when Tim goes off and he goes A B C D, and Jody will go No, 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 no. It's L M N O P. You know, and it's like. And you'll get way more of that as the other judges come in too. Oh boy! <laughs> you know, where it's not like 
you just walk. This is the river that you flow that flows. It takes mm-hmm. you to the sea of of happiness. You know, you've got all types of different, not necessarily disparaging, but um, conflicting perspectives. Like we were just talking about, Tim and Joey were talking about today on, on conventions and putting your book up there. Don't do it. Don't, you know, Tim hates anything like that. He thinks it's like it's unnecessary to promote yourself. And Joey's saying. Well, how else are you going to do it? You know, and that's the beauty is that they're both right. And anybody that knows anything knows that diversity of perspective is the right answer. That's one of the great things about having so many uh, judges, so many mentors. Mm-hmm. Um, if this art was a science, then everyone everyone could do it. I think it's the people who learn how to manipulate the art that uh, have a chance of being successful. So... Um, yeah, largely they, uh, I don't want to say been in agreement, but they've been parallel that that disagreement was the first time that I've, uh, saw them dig their heels in and it was quite entertaining and, you know, we were laughing and, and whatnot, they were putting on a good show for us. And, but, uh, yeah, the, the takeaway, um, you, you're absolutely right is there's not one way to do this. There are many ways to do this. And the more we learn, the better off we're going to be and the more successful yeah. we're going to be. Yeah. Now, there's all the different essays that you've gone through that uh, were written by Owen Hubbard. Any particular one that as a standout for you? Yeah, the one essay, uh, one essay that really stood out was uh, suspense, and especially our discussion about suspense, that essentially suspense is completely necessary to continue driving the conversation of the plot forward. L. Ron Hubbard in the in his uh in the essay, you know, was mentioning the anomaly of uh back in the day the editors would send back the uh the critique and just say it would just say lack suspense. Um you know without you know taking the time to really describe what what that meant. And I think what we're learning here during that block of the instruction is that it's uh, it's the you know marketing we might call it the the what's in it for me for the reader the that hook that little um, that little itch that makes the reader want to scratch and then Tim Powers was talking about you know the pacing that you don't necessarily escalate that suspense continuously sometimes you have to take your foot off the pedal a little bit and let it die back down so that the reader has a chance to catch their breath. Mm-hmm. And then you bring it right back up because yeah. you want to escalate, escalate, escalate until you reach that climax and then bring it back down for the, uh, for the resolution and then not introduce necessarily more suspense. Now there is times where you can, um, I think Jody was talking about, um, it's perhaps rare, um, you don't see it often, and when it's when it is done, when you introduce more suspense in the conclusion or the falling action, is done for a very specific reason. Um, but uh, yeah, that that was I did not realize how much suspense as a essentially as a, as its own element, how important that is to uh, to really every every story. Like when I hear suspense, I think. Um, you think thriller, thriller, yeah. horror, but no, no suspense is that is that element that makes the reader want to keep going. Yeah, turn the page like so. What happens exactly? And every you know they uh, Jody mentioned uh, there's some terrible writers out there, but we read their books because 
they're really good at suspense that the opening chap opening of the chapter and the ending of the chapter are written so well that you just can't help but read the next page everything in the middle uh, is a little lackluster but they know how to do the suspense and so we we read we read the whole book and then we buy the, the next book next book that's right and you know that's that's what it's all about is putting the stories in the hands of, of the readers mm -hmm. so um that's good yeah because that's that comes across quite frequently as suspense and the magic out of a hat being able to create you know, the, the, that's the example of the story that from the the trash can that he turned into a kabanka in the in the Russian war that when you had the um, Bolsheviks taking over the uh, the old regime there they, they started going over there so which is how the the whole idea of getting you get here's a here's an item you know just an inconsequential item and from there to be able to create a story off of that you know that's one of the essays that that came from the uh, search for research which goes into that you know all these things here are used as part of what the workshop is that's how the workshop was actually built originally by Algis Budras from those articles and essays by uh, by Mr. Hubbard so one thing I did too is I sent around uh, a book to everybody all the winners to be able to use in terms of reference to some of these different points that, that he covered in these essays, and that's fear. So what do you think of that book? I, so I struggle with digesting uh, the golden age era of, uh, of storytelling. But right off the bat, with the presentation and the dialogue, I appreciated it because you know, you, there was a very th you know, theatrical of the time um, dialogue and it felt very Twilight Zone-ish and, and it, uh, very good. And then all of a sudden you get this relationship with the main character and his wife. And it's not something I really appreciate. It wasn't um, a token relationship. Um, Mary is a very vivid character and very vital character to to the main character. I, I, I'd say she has more personality than him. and Which makes the ending all the more shocking. Yeah, uh, did, not, did not see that coming, <laughs> as good stories are. Yeah. Um, so as, as it progresses, you know, of course you start to wonder, is, uh, you know, is he having a psychological episode? Is it the malaria? Has he dabbled into the supernatural? Like the questions are there. Mm -hmm. And then uh, as what appears to be the hallucinations um, become more personal to him and, uh, you know, the question of the four hours and the hat, I'm like, what is going on with the four hours? What is going on with the hat? This is this is going to, I mean, it wasn't even foreshadowing. This is blatant. This is going to come back and smack you in the face at the end of the story. And it did. Uh, at the point where he becomes convinced that his, uh, his best friend and his wife are um, not who they say they are. Um, at that point, I, I realized, oh, I understand why this work is, this work is a, like a primordial example of horror and thriller. So many other stories are based off of this construct. This is like an original 
concept of of the psychological. It's really, that was, that was actually the first thing. This what actually started that genre, that subgenre. Mm-hmm. So by the end, I totally understood. Like, oh, this is why we're reading this. And then the ending. I don't. know, Can we talk about the ending, or do we want to keep that? Uh, we can. Get, you, you're. We don't have to say what the ending is, but then however it, it impacted you, you're well, you're welcome to talk about that. I loved it because I love. I like writing psychological. Um, impacts of things, things where people's minds are affected, which is fluent throughout the entire story. That is yeah. a central theme of the story is, is, is it his mind, the malaria sickness, or is it the supernatural? At the end, you get the answer. Well, yeah. you, get, you, you get the result. You don't necessarily know. It's implied uh, you, you get an answer, and yeah. uh, that was that was astounding. <laughs> it was, yeah, that was a that was an enjoyable read. Yeah, and that's when I sent the letter to you. I also put all the different blurbs from all these major people, you know, major authors who had nothing but amazing things to to say. Philip Dick, that's what actually got him. That's one of the things that actually inspired him to start writing his uh, his horror. I was so surprised, no, not surprised, but uh, pleased to learn about the pedigree of writers in relation to this world. You know, Alice Budridge, who discovered Stephen King, and Alice was, uh, you know, best friends with uh, Mr. Hubbard, um, and who, and then that story inspired Philip K. Dick. Like, this world was a tight, a tight circle because they were talented. And that talent resonated throughout. Uh, it's like in music, you know, especially like West Coast uh, rap, you know, that you can trace back who discovered who and who influenced who. And that's really fun. And and now I've discovered in uh, in the realm of some of my favorites, they were all inter, interconnected all the way back to, you know, the, the 30s. That's really mm-hmm. neat. Yeah, they've got these great letters from like Asimov, when he was a fan reading um, Hubbard's Pulp Fiction work, he says, some more of Hubbard, please, and they, they vote. And, and his, his stories are always in the top 10 every month, you know, just his, his stories. Just, yeah, he, he definitely was, he's one of the most qualified persons to create the Writers of the Future contest, you know, out there. And the fact that he's endowed it for perpetuity, you know, that's crazy. I I appreciate uh him as a person so much because the search for knowledge and the joy of searching for knowledge just the adventurer I I knew of the adventure aspect of him but after learning how and why and and when um he just did everything and and you know learning about his family about you know how his mom was uh you know, had such an appreciation for knowledge and passed it on to him and uh, then being a military family and, you know, getting to move and see the different parts of the world and how he carried it. He seemed like he just never stopped. He just, he just went full speed through his whole life, mm-hmm. learning, applying his knowledge. And then, and then now we get to be the benefactors of, of his uh, contributions to fiction of every genre, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's a, uh, yeah, he was America's youngest Eagle Scout at the time. He was just turned thirteen, and um, 
then as a member of the Explorers Club, traveling a lot. So it, he was licensed to sail any tonnage of any vessel um, in any ocean um, as a master mariner. But then as a lieutenant in the, in the Navy, one thing that's interesting, which the general who's going to be speaking uh, will be bringing up as well, um, it wasn't the final bill that got proposed, but he wrote a bill proposing United States Air Force. And he gave it to a U.S. senator to submit. It took, I think, two or three more versions after that one, but he submitted it. And there's, you'll see a letter from the senator thanking him for his proposal. But um, he really saw the need for a separate Air Force you know, seeing what was happening in Europe and Germany, and if we didn't do something, then we would be uh, secondary to what they were creating, because they were very much in the forefront of their research and creating with uh, the V-2 and all their planes and whatnot, and all we had was the, uh, the Army Air Corps. So he was very instrumental in that and proposing what, like I said, which became the U.S. Air Force. And a lot of his stories, too, went into the need for United States to be um, also ahead of the curve on space and controlling space. There's one story called The Last Admiral, which at that point it was because there was no Air Force, so it was the, the Navy, and he was he was one that basically, in, in essence, would be the start of, of um, Space Force, what, what he was doing there. You know, it was, it's pretty amazing how, you know, he so supported the um, American military just it's just it was really important I mean he was obviously he was a, a naval lieutenant but he was also the Marine uh, Reserve before that and um, I think he served in World War two in um, three theaters so it's it's it was it was important to him and it's also keeping the United States and what it stands for in terms of the democracy and freedom of speech it's as many problems as there are with it, anytime I find someone that, that's moved here from another country, they say, you have no idea what you've got. You, you have no idea. And Americans are, feel so entitled to what they've gotten that you should get more. But then I talk to people you know, who come over, winners that come from other countries, and they go, you have no idea. You know, when you're in another country where you don't have this, this is like amazing being here in America. So <clears throat> anyway, it, it's, it's great. And it's, you know, it's, so it's, it was an important thing what, you know, on doing that and the storytelling that he did, a lot of his military fiction, some of them you can just see the, him waving the flag, <laughs> you know, they get really, you know, Americano on some, some of his military fiction. But, um, you know, he loved his writing, he loved his traveling experience you know, and helping his fellow man. That's something that was really important. His stories are, have some type of uh, Heinlein said, I always thought there was a certain number of, of storylines. And he said, I learned from you, there's another one. It's the man that learned better. Mm. And so he had asked somebody who wasn't necessarily doing well in life, not doing the right thing. Sometimes he was a little bit crooked. And then he's faced with some um, crossroads. And he's got to make a decision to do the right thing. And then his stories. They do, you know, which is really good because the average person can, can relate to that because nobody's perfect. Mm -hmm. Redemption. Yeah. So on your storytelling, you're really good on, you know, your, your character development, 
you know, you put it together, and it's very easy to visualize who you're saying, even though it's a short story. Even in some of the more people you only saw on the on, on ancillary characters there in the bar, yeah, you know, then yeah. you find out that they're working with him. But I can I can totally visualize him. I can see that person, you know, or those people. So obviously you consider that important, but how'd you establish that? How'd you get to where you can do that? There is a technique to that that I find uh, very important because going into this, um, you know, I'd always known that characters have different characters have to have different voices. Mm -hmm. Otherwise you're just writing the man in the mirror and you can't do that. So early on, I'm not expect to have somebody want to read it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So very early on, um, also for my ease and convenience, cause you know, to see these things in my head, I, uh, I started to first off when I develop a character, pick an actor, actress, character, something like that, that either represents or closely is identified to the character that I'm developing so that I've got an anchor. Mm -hmm. And then, or sometimes it's not just their face or persona, but their voice. And uh, I did that for every single one of the characters in, the, in this story because, yeah, there's three ancillary characters that I don't think they actually have any speaking lines. They just get uh, arrested. There's uh, two characters who are really just catalysts to moving the plot. They're important, but they're not front and center like Gallows. And, um, yeah, so I started out with um, a collection of other characters, and in my head I was just hearing that actor or actress's voice. And so when I was writing the dialogue, I was thinking, how would this performer sound? And then, uh, and then I'd also base, you know, to an extent their um, their uh, their appearance, so that instead of having, uh, you know, a dozen carbon copy bland people, you've got distinct characters because you can't introduce, um, you know, in a, in a fifty five hundred word story, you can't introduce twelve people and. Uh, not have them be distinct. That's a terrible, right. terrible idea. Right. And there was, gosh, now that we're talking about it, there's even more than I just mentioned because there's the gallows jumps across so many different uh, scenes and times as there's, uh, it's interlinked between flashbacks and then the uh, the main plot of him trying to get the uh, the time traveler to show her tell that she's a, a traveler. So, even just before you get there, you've got, his handler, his FBI handler, that mm -hmm. that girl, and then you've got the one senator who's calling it a bunch of bunk, and you don't need this money. Who's actually not what he appears to be, mm -hmm. you know? Even the FBI uh, assistant director for the division, he had a lot of dialogue because he's the one proposing the budget, and he's only there so that the senator can be and established. It. Can, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, but he had to have a distinct voice and personality. Otherwise, no one's going to pay attention to what he's saying. And so I, I hope that uh, someone as uh, low level as that character uh, came off um, with the personality that, that I had envisioned, you know, all the way up to, uh, again, the, the, the other three travelers that don't have speaking roles, but they 
They're there. They're there. <laughs> yeah. No, it's good. I mean, it, it it was very memorable what you did on that stuff, and that's I was just curious because it. Not always do I remember the characters. I can remember there's story, there's a plot, but then character is sometimes in stories can become on short stories can be very weak, you know, and relies more on on the plot, you know, mm-hmm. kind of like in the action to take you through and that stuff. So you don't. You know, the character, maybe you'll have the protagonist and he's mm-hmm. coming in and he's got his big antagonist and you know, and it's it's there, but everything else is just their their cardboard pop-ups, you know, the their other characters. Right. And yours were not. Oh, thank you. <laughs> That's yeah. really good to hear. <laughs> we haven't you know, obviously because of the nature of the contest, we we haven't had uh, uh a lot of direct feedback about our about our entries yet. Um so that's very good to very good to hear. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, it's um that was is very noticeable on that. So with this done, do you have any other books that are in the works? That is a great question. Um, so I use writing as uh, as self therapy. Um, a lot of what I write is me just kind of dumping out the pain or emotion uh, or uh, the big feelings of whatever's going on in, in life. Um, you know, we're a special needs family and uh, you know, navigating, um, navigating that life. And my, my little boy is six now. That's a very big age for, you know, development. And he's getting his own personality and becoming his own person. So I find a lot of my stuff, um, revolves around uh the relationship between fathers and 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 sons just naturally and you know you know two three years ago um that wasn't the case because he was just a baby right so um i like to i use i use writing as a as as a form of uh you know a, a form of meditation a form of therapy where i get to work out my own Feelings in a creative, a creative artistic way. So one of the uh, yes, one of uh, so as we talk about career progression, phase one was absolutely land writers of the future. I didn't think about what phase two was. <laughs> so phase two, as it looks like right now, is again shopping those those uh, those short stories that placed somewhere in previous contest years, but uh, you know didn't. Uh, didn't uh, place the top three, so I'm shopping those around. And while those are shopping, I'm I'm working on um, on on a story about a uh, a neurodivergent um, character in uh, in a dystopian future where um, society has broken off into four different divisions. Um, this character um, finds himself. Uh, Trying to be assimilated by each of these four um, subsects of of culture, and mm-hmm. they find that they can't assimilate him, and um, and so the dynamics of the interactions of um, or the theme of that you can't force people to be that that what they are not, and and at the end, uh, well, I won't I won't spoil the ending, but uh, it's uh, it's probably a good a good message for this day and age to. Uh, to accept and love people as uh, as they are, and, and that we're all we're all special in our own ways, which is which is absolutely true. It's interesting. I was talking with Jody this afternoon on a 
it'll be up in a, a podcast interview too. And what we look for in writers of the future type of stories, it's really easy to get the stuff that kind of like bums you. It's really easy to, you just turn on TV, you know, and it's, <laughs> yes. it's just, it'll just, I was eating dinner downstairs and there was the whole thing with, you know, um, Ukraine and Russia. And of course, the TV's got to portray it in the most foul way that they can possibly can come up with. And they were doing a dandy job of that. So it's nice for me to be able to read something like, ah, this is refreshing. It's I can just like for a little bit, I can be over here in another world and another environment and just things can come out okay. Mm -hmm. you know, it's important to have that, to keep, to keep that, in mind that things can and will come out okay. And that's one thing that, that Rise of the Future very much um, likes. So like your story isn't something that it's not necessarily a, a YA feel good story, but it's a great story on, on uh, someone that comes, you know, he's got closure on what happened with him when he almost died, you know, or he was supposed to die, but he, he didn't. Mm -hmm. And um, he's now, because everybody on the plane, he had just checked in, and then he got waylaid. And so he was on the, on the uh, list of those that died. So mm -hmm. for all intents and purposes, from what everybody knew, he was dead. So he could be going to this, he, 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 as at this point, he was now invisible to be able to do this other thing. Reborn both in identity and psychologically, which in the beginning... Um, is very disturbing for him because mm -hmm. who am I now? Now that I am supposed to be dead, who am I? And uh, what's left in that vacuum is just raw, and which leads him to that that uh, that vengeance of well, I'm just I'm gonna stop these, st I'm gonna stop the future. But absolutely, the theme was about uh, you know retaking control. Yeah. Of what you can. And then, um, and then, you know, and then there's the, you know, the question of uh, ethics versus morality, you know, is ethically is what he, what he's doing, uh, ethical? Yes. Is it morally acceptable? Uh, pro probably not. You know, in the way he's very much a, um, a, a kick down the door, let's do this by any means necessary type of character because he is fueling his own trauma. So there was a, there was very much a journey of his uh, coping, which he doesn't do. He's a broken character, which mm -hmm. a lot I think a lot of people can identify, identify with. with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but at at the end, um, you know, David recommended that uh, um, the the ending perhaps ended too abruptly, and so he he recommended adding a a, a little bit of a pad. Towards the end, so I, I had the character, I had Gallows, sit down and just kind of be astounded, like this actually worked. And then in that moment, um, everything kind of just catches up to him, like the whole last you know X amount of years, and then realize this worked. We have a chance. I'm somewhat whole again. Okay, let's stand back up and do it again because we just caught the first three and who knows how many others are out there. Mm -hmm. That's great. So now on um, 
Do you have a website where people can can find you? I do. I do. Um, so I keep it pretty simple. It's the desmondastaire.com. Um, same for Twitter and Instagram, just Desmond Astaire. Um, yeah, there, you know, you, you touched on earlier with the news. There's just so much toxicity and negativity on the social media. So I keep mine up because I want to connect with other writers and connect with readers and infuse uh, fun yeah. and positivity. So if you got some of that, find me on there. I'd love to, I'd love to talk and meet people and, and share this passion of, of storytelling and literature. So, yep, I got the, the website, Instagram, and Twitter. That's great. And then on, um, so right now they're going to find your storytelling. I just, how much do you spend? Are you, because you've got a full military career that you've got that you're, that you're living right now. So how much time are you able to spend writing to, to do what you do? You know, I'm going to say this in my award speech and I'll, I'll say it again. This, this is kudos to my wife who, uh, she, uh, she m manages the house every Saturday morning and, and, Make sure that I get uh, uh, a block of time every Saturday morning where I, I just go to the coffee shop and for about two or three hours I I have my coffee and and I write and that's and that's my that's my that's my uh, my time to just unwind and relax from the week because yeah it's it's uh you know at work when the sun is uh, not shining and then we get home and, and then it's it's the the second job of of our uh, of, of our, you know, special needs family and, and navigating that, which is absolutely a, a second full-time job. And, uh, and then we're in the process of trying to, uh, to move to, to get our kiddo in a, in a better school district. And, um, so without, uh, without earmarking that time, um, it definitely would not be, uh, be possible. But another practice that, that I, um, it's, it doesn't work for my situation specifically, but you know I think my case is a, a smidge unusual. Um, in other times, and what I hear other people recommend, and it's absolutely true, is take 10 minutes a night or 10 minutes uh, over lunch, 10 minutes when you wake up. Um, the quantity of doing that 10 minutes a day, it doesn't sound like much, but it actually adds up to mm -hmm. quite a bit. If you can... Uh, I, I forgot which author it was, uh, contemporary mainstream now. Currently, someone asked him, how much do you how much do you write? Or how much time do you spend writing? And he said, on this book, I wrote uh, five minutes at a time because that's all he had at the, at the time. So what you can put into it is enough. You just have to commit and have a routine. Uh, I think so many authors never reach their potential because they don't have a goal or a commitment. They just are a leaf on the wind. Well, that's not going to get you across the finish line. Mm -hmm. you know? So for me, my uh, my investment looks like you know, about three hours every Saturday morning in Peoria at, at a coffee shop and <laughs> and uh, and do dual purpose. I, that's my my defuse from the week and uh, my crank out some words time. Well, that's great. Well, it's been really, really nice being able to talk to you, Desmond, and uh, obviously great meeting you. And uh, after reading the story the second time as well, you know, I was really looking forward to being able to meet you and just saying, okay, so what kind of a mind came up with that? 
No, thank you. No, it's been such an honor to be here and meet everyone in person and uh, a once-in-a-lifetime experience. I'm very, very honored and happy to, to be here. Thank you so much. Well, that's great. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Writers of the Future podcast is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, Player FM, iHeart, and Spotify. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. The Writers of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere else on Amazon. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Owen Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to new and amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Desmond. Thank you.